Today on Question Period, desperate fight. Putin's forces escalate their ruthless assault. Can Ukraine hold their capital without NATO support from the air? Nothing can be important than my family. And with more than a million and a half Ukrainians fleeing, is Canada responding quickly enough to the massive humanitarian disaster? Immigration Minister Sean Fraser joins us. Then we'll get reaction in Kyiv from the former Ukrainian ambassador to Canada. Then, no-fly zone? That would be a level of escalation that is unfortunate, uh, that we need to avoid. Should NATO put a no-fly zone over Ukraine? How far is the West willing to go to take on Vladimir Putin? We'll speak to Russian human rights activist Gary Kasparov and former chief of the defense staff Tom Lawson. Plus, the contender. Are you yesterday's man, Mr. Chavez? With a conservative leadership race date now set, will Jean Charest take on Pierre Polyevre? Who else will jump in to fight for the soul of that party? Former Conservative Cabinet Minister James Moore joins us on the Scrum. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. Good morning. As you can see, I'm broadcasting outside my home this morning as a member of my family has tested positive for COVID. Just a small reminder that we're still at the tail end of one crisis as we're dealing with the escalation of another. That, of course, is the war in Ukraine. Today is day 11 of that war, and the Russian attacks on cities are intensifying, but so too is the resistance. First, the extraordinarily effective and brave fight the Ukrainians are conducting against Russia. And second, the support from the West in terms of weapons and sanctions against Russia. Yesterday, President Vladimir Putin declared the extensive sanctions are, quote, akin to a declaration of war. But more measures are coming, except for one. A NATO no-fly zone over Ukraine remains off the table. This hour, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is on his way to Europe to meet with allies and discuss next steps. What more could be on the way? We have team coverage from Ukraine and from Poland, but we'll begin with CTV's chief international correspondent, Paul Workman. He's in Lviv, Ukraine. Paul. Evan, the last 24 hours here have been an absolute whirlwind of fighting. More attacks on civilians, strong Ukrainian resistance and some diplomacy. Here's the battlefield layout this morning. The Russians appear to be making strong gains in the south, but their blitz on the capital city, Kyiv, is stalled and, and has been stalled for about a week now. It's possible the Russians are marshalling their forces for one big push on the city or else their convoys are being ambushed and slowed down. Ukraine will make another attempt today to um, evacuate civilians from the besieged city of Mariupol. Uh, they tried yesterday, but the Russians wouldn't stop shelling. The conditions there are horrible. Water, heat and power have been cut off. Food is scarce. Russia felt more economic sting from companies pulling out. Visa and MasterCard will cease operations in the country. And the Prime Minister of Israel, Naftali Bennett, flew to Moscow for talks with um, the Russian leader, Vladimir Putin. Will that lead anywhere? It seems a long shot. And there were more threats and intimidation from Putin. He warned, and this was chilling, that he considers economic sanctions to be akin to an act of war. And he dropped any pretense of his master plan for Ukraine. Stop the fighting now, he warned, uh, or this country of 44 million could disappear as a state and simply become a part of Russia. Evan. 
Okay, thanks, Paul. That's CTV's Paul Workman in Lviv, Ukraine. Okay, from the battle lines to the humanitarian crisis now, over 1.5 million Ukrainians have been forced to flee their country because of the Russian invasion, causing what could be the worst humanitarian crisis in Europe in the century. CTV's Danielle Hamamjan joins us now from the Poland-Ukraine border. Danielle. Evan, this is the humanitarian side of the story in numbers. The UN says today that as of now, 1.5 million people have fled Ukraine, making it the fastest growing refugee crisis since the Second World War, surpassing the 2015 refugee crisis Europe saw back then, surpassing the Rohingya crisis we saw out of Myanmar back in 2017. And the vast majority have come here to Poland. We've seen them cross the borders on foot crossing at times having taken days to walk to the border and then waiting in some cases up to 72 hours to cross in freezing temperatures. The vast majority, of course, women and children, women who've had to leave their husbands behind, children who've had to leave their fathers behind. They've also come through this central station in the border town of Peshesmashil, which is where I am now. There is only one train at a time that can come from Ukraine. At times, what is supposed to be a two or three hour journey has taken up to 60 hours. One border guard just told me there was a 20 hour delay the other day just because there is so much disruption and there are so many people trying to cross into Poland. What has been remarkable to see on the one hand, the acts of kindness and the generosity by people all over Poland, Germany and Europe who've come here to show people holding signs how many people they can accommodate in their homes. On the other hand, I have seen so many people cross back into to Ukraine. Tens of thousands have crossed back, the vast majority of them men. But I saw a woman this morning who told me that she drove her nieces and nephews to Germany and she drove back and she got on a train to Ukraine because she had to be with her brother and be with her parents and that is where she belonged, she said. Another woman came here with her sister who's on a wheelchair and she said, I'm happy I'm here on safe soil, but this has to be a temporary solution. This is not permanent. We want to be able to go back home eventually. Evan. Okay, thanks, Danielle. CTV's Danielle Hamamjum reporting from Poland. Meantime, Canada is taking new steps to help Ukraine and hit back at Russia. To help with Ukraine's fight on the ground, Canada is sending 100 anti-tank weapon systems, 2,000 rockets, and up to 4,500 rocket launchers, and up to 7,500 hand grenades. On the trade front, exports from Russia and Belarus will now be slapped with a 35% tariff. Canada is the first country to take this step. Canada is also looking to take more action against Russian oligarchs. I do want... The Russian leadership to understand, Russian oligarchs to understand, we're going to keep on going. Uh, there is a tremendous willingness among the world's democracies to just continue ratcheting up the pressure. The federal government will also be offering a safe haven for Ukrainians by expediting temporary visas for emergency travel for an unlimited number of people who want to flee. So how much further might Canada go to sanction Russia and just how many Ukrainians will end up here in Canada and how fast? Let's find out. Joining me now is the Minister of Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship, Sean Fraser. Minister, good to have you on the program. I know you're just recovering from COVID. I hope you and your family are doing okay as we 
finish one crisis and move on to the other. I know the prime minister is on his way uh, to the UK, Poland, Germany and Latvia for this trip. What new measures uh, will Canada take against Russia? Uh, look, one of the things that I think has proven to be a strength of the response to Putin's war of aggression is the multilateral approach and coordinating our efforts uh, with our international partners to make sure that they have maximum impact. I don't want to prejudge where the discussions will go, but the conversations that we're having internally are looking to continue to enforce significant sanctions to do what we can to really put pressure on the Russian economy so they can't fund this war and so that they feel consequences for their action. Uh, of course, on the flip side of the coin, we need to make sure we're there to support Ukrainians, whether it's our military aid, whether it's humanitarian aid, or of course, for my part, advancing immigration measures to welcome those who are fleeing with open arms to provide them with safe haven from this conflict. And let, let's talk about that. There are now, this is extraordinary, a million and a half Ukrainians who have been forced to flee their country because of the Russian invasion. I know you're, you've installed these two new immigration streams for Ukrainian refugees to come to Canada. The opposition is demanding that Canada go further and follow the lead of other countries and essentially install visa-free travel so people can come here as quickly as possible. Why not do that? Well, look, that's one of the first things that I looked at when we understood that there was a the potential for an influx of Ukrainians who would be seeking to come to Canada fleeing this conflict. My first reaction was to figure out whether we could stand up a refugee resettlement program, and we quickly realized that would be inappropriate for the circumstances and would take too long. My second thought was actually to consider whether we could look at visa-free travel. And there was two primary reasons why it's not as uh, appropriate an approach as to the program that we've laid out. Uh, the first is speed. Uh, when we looked into the changes that would be required, both from a regulatory point of view and an IT systems point of view across three different government departments and potentially for airlines as well, it would have taken 12 to 14 weeks to stand up a visa-free travel regime. And we didn't have that kind of time. We also wanted to make sure that given the fact that we're willing to take however many applications are made, uh, that we wanted to have some integrity in the protest uh, pro, uh, program rather, uh, to ensure that uh, we were protecting against the fighters in the Donbass region who've been fighting against Ukrainian forces from infiltrating the program and coming to Canada without a security screening process. We've managed to get biometrics in the region uh, over the past six weeks so we can process people for security on an expedited basis and welcome people here as fast as possible, but also in the safest possible way. Okay, um, you, you say there's an unlimited number. Can you give Canadians a sense of how many Ukrainian refugees Canada is prepared to take in and how quickly um, that may happen? What's the, what's the number? Are we talking about 40,000 as it was with Af uh, Afghan refugees or are you talking about hundreds and hundreds of thousands? It depends on the demand that we see. One of the reasons that we've been able to uh, create this program that doesn't have an upper limit is because we're not looking at traditional refugee resettlement. One of the first things we heard from the Ukrainian Canadian community is that the vast majority of the people who want to come to Canada don't want to stay. If we learned anything about Ukrainians who are fleeing this conflict, it's that they love their homeland and they want to go back when the war is over. The way, reason we've been able to set up a program so quickly to accommodate such a large number of people is because we base it on the way that we welcome visitors to Canada, which is traditionally able to process more than 2 million applications a year. So we're attaching work permits to it to allow people to come here and to work for a period of up to two years. 
but they're going to want to go back at the end of this. So we've not set an upper limit to date to give you a sense of what the scale looks like. From the beginning of January, there's now 6,265 Ukrainians who've already arrived in Canada. We do expect to see that number to continue to trend upwards, but until we actually see the demand from the people who want to come to Canada, we won't know with precision what that number looks like. Just on that note, there is something that I think people are remarking on. Since January, as you say, more than 6,000 Ukrainians have arrived here because you've waived a lot of these restrictions and had this extraordinary program. Canada promised 40,000 Afghans to come. Since uh, August of 2021, 7,885 Afghans have only arrived out of the 40,000. Why waive the restrictions for Ukrainians, but not for Afghans fleeing the Taliban? Why the double standard? Uh, the situations are, are different, and I think we've got to be really sensitive to the fact, because people are right to point out that you shouldn't have a completely different response uh, when people are fleeing Europe than are fleeing other parts of the world where, frankly, people don't look like me. And I think it's important that we have a tailored response based on the circumstances and not based on the color of a person's skin or their country of origin. With respect to Afghanistan, the reason the approach is different, and we have made one of the most substantial commitments of any country in the world, I would point out, and there's now more than 8,500. I think the uh, number needs to be updated on the website because we're seeing more people arrive every week, including a few hundred in Calgary just last week and more flights arriving every week. But one of the big differences is the fact that the people who are fleeing Afghanistan we're planning to have them become Canadians and to live here forever. Uh, when you do have a permanent resettlement process, that works into our annuals levels planning to make sure that we're prepared to resettle and set people up for success on a permanent basis. The other challenge that we're seeing with Afghanistan compared to Ukraine is the people who are fleeing Ukraine have safe passage to the west of Ukraine, whether they're going to uh, Romania or they're going to Poland or they're going to Slovakia or Hungary and onwards through Europe where they're able to travel. With respect to the people in Afghanistan, we've made a specific commitment to individuals, specific individuals who worked or fought alongside the Canadian forces. And most of those people are still inside Afghanistan and the Taliban who seized control of the region, which is a terrorist entity under Canadian law, is not letting them leave. We're trying to work very hard with partners on the ground to facilitate safe passage so we can process them in a similar manner to we are for Ukrainians with biometric screening and then working with settlement partners to set them up for success when we're here. So the circumstances are quite different between the two efforts, but I'm very proud because Canada and both Ukraine and Afghanistan has really become the right. world leader when it comes to welcoming those fleeing humanitarian crises. All right, I got to leave it there. Obviously, Prime Minister on his way to Europe right now. Minister, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you as always, Evan. Thank you so much. All right, when we come back, Kyiv under siege. How much longer can Ukraine's capital hold off against a full Russian assault? Is negotiating with Russia even an option? The former Ukrainian ambassador to Canada joins us from Kyiv next. Stay right here with Question Period. Welcome back to Question Period. It was once said that during the Second World War, Winston Churchill mobilized the English language and sent it into battle. Well, the same might be said for the remarkable Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, whose words and actions have inspired his country to fight and the world to support them. But after failing to convince NATO to impose a no-fly zone in the wake of the Russian attacks on residential areas, NATO argues that would lead to a wider war. President Zelensky lashed out at the alliance members, saying, quote, all the people who die from this day forward will also die because of you. 
So what further support does Ukraine need right now if there will be no no-fly zone and after 11 days of war, are negotiations even a possibility? Let's find out. Joining me now is the former Ukrainian ambassador to Canada, Andrei Shevchenko. He is in Kyiv. He's also a member of a reserve unit there, so he may be in the fight soon. Um, Ambassador, always a pleasure to see you, and I hope you and your family are safe. Can you give us the latest? I can see you're on the streets in Kyiv, in the capital right now, and it looks quiet. What's the latest there? Well, Evan, right now we are in, in, in a window between the airstrikes and airstrike sirens. So as you can see, people, uh, or some brave people, they would get outside and they would try to do to find some groceries or do some uh, some basic things that that uh, that you you need to do. But uh, don't be mistaken; uh, it's a fortress, and there is uh, there is an obvious feeling of war in in the air. And we are using every minute that we have to make sure that this fortress is stronger and stronger. Give us a sense of of. The, the the day's events of the war, the Russian bombing, and, and how close the Russian forces are to the capital of Kyiv right now. What are you preparing for, sir? Well, they are trying to encircle Kyiv, which is a big price for them. And uh, uh, from where I stand, well, maybe up to, to 15 or 20 kilometers, that's the closest they, they have got. Uh, so far, they do not have much success uh, with this attempt to encircle Kyiv, but uh, we are absolutely sure they will continue uh, doing so. What is the most uh, scary, tragic uh, part of this is that they continue shelling. And it's not just about Kyiv, it's not just about Kharkiv, but about many, uh, many other places. And uh, that is something which really, which is really heartbreaking because that's where most of the civilians uh, die. And we are talking about about uh, old people, about children. So this this is terrible. So every time when we, you hear an airstrike siren, you take it very ser- seriously because every day you see how they target specifically apartment blocks and civilian infrastructure. Mm. Let's talk about. Uh these negotiations. It's day 11, sir. Um, is there any hope for any kind of negotiation with Russia? I know there's negotiations not just on withdrawals, but there's negotiations on no-fly zone um, corridors so people can actually escape. Uh, give us the sense of what's happening there and if those are being violated. Well, it's two different things. So first, uh, when it comes to negotiation with the Russians, and we expect there will be another round of negotiations tomorrow, it's round three. I would say that expectations here are very low, just because uh, so far we, we have seen Putin being absolutely doing absolutely crazy things. And uh, we don't, as a diplomat, uh, I do not see much space for diplomatic work there yet. But when it comes to no-fly zone, it's a big ask that we are making to our closest friends. We are asking for no, for establishing no-fly humanitarian corridors or no-fly humanitarian zones, specifically to protect the civilians and to make sure that we do not have a humanitarian catastrophe in the Ukrainian cities. If you think about this eastern city of Kharkiv, it's one million people who are half-sieged, and uh, and uh, they the Russians keep shelling those those civilians. So that's exactly the situation where we need that sort of humanitarian no-fly corridors. Okay, can you explain how that's going to work? NATO has said there will not be a no-fly zones at all. You're talking about no-fly zone humanitarian corridors. Are you asking NATO members to enforce 
humanitarian corridors with NATO jets in the air? Is that what Ukraine wants? We need uh, to we need to protect our people from the skies. And again, we understand that no-fly zone is a very difficult tool. But again, it has happened before. It it was used in Iraq, it was used in Libya, in Bosnia and Herzegovina. So we do expect that our key NATO friends, our key NATO allies will revise their decision, will change their decision. This is the way to protect civilians. And I understand that uh, no one wants to get involved in, 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 in a war with Russia. But uh, I want you, Evan, and all our Canadian friends to know that uh, uh, the world is already in a war. One way or another, this war will come to to every nation which chooses to stand for freedom. And we believe that the sooner we start really cooperating between us, the the sooner we will end uh, this uh, nightmare. But for now, we need this no-fly zone to protect civilians. Just last thing before I go. I, the scenes out of your country are remarkable. The bravery of so many people uh, standing up to this invasion, and I know you and your family are in the capital of Kyiv. Um, it has been remarkable. Um, just give us a sense of, of, of the mood of Ukrainians. It seems that there is a remarkable sense of resistance and resilience. Uh, and pride. I think, uh, I think everyone is very proud to be in this situation right now, defending, defending his or her country. And also there is an optimism. And when my uh, Canadian friends ask me what pictures uh, I think of when when I try to explain this, the invasion, obviously there are terrible scenes from the destroyed houses and that sort of, of pictures. But also there was one picture of uh, this uh, uh, childbirth hospital in uh, in Odessa, which is a wonderful city. So I, I saw about 50 ladies, young ladies uh, with uh, newborns in their underground shelter but it's new life. And it tells us that even under these terrible, tragic circumstances, uh, life finds it is finding its way to, to win over this darkness and over this evil. So there is a lot, of, uh, a lot of tragedy, but also there is a lot of hope and enthusiasm, Evan. Yeah, remarkable. That scene in Odessa, that coastal city on the Black Sea, a key port city as well. Uh, you and I are in close contact. I always appreciate it. Um, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Please stay safe, you and your family and everyone there. Appreciate it. Thank you, Evan. All right, still to come, punishing Putin. How far is Vladimir Putin willing to go to take over Ukraine? And how far is the West willing to go to stop him? Chess Grandmaster and vocal Putin critic Gary Kasparov and the former Chief of the Defense Staff General Tom Lawson join us next. Stay right here with Question Period. fly zone is still a no-go zone for NATO. Still, Ukrainians are urging NATO to reconsider its position, especially for humanitarian corridors, as Russia escalates its brutal attacks on civilian targets. Still, NATO is not budging. Our assessment is that uh, we understand the desperation, but we also believe that if we did that, we'll end up with something that could end in a full-fledged war in Europe involving many more countries. This morning, there is a temporary ceasefire in effect in Mariupol, that's in the south of Ukraine, to help evacuate residents there. There was a ceasefire yesterday. It was quickly broken, showing how fragile efforts are to stop the fighting. So far, Russian troops have captured Kherson in the south of Ukraine, and they continue to try and move into key cities of Kharkiv and Kyiv. So is an escalation in the war inevitable or 
is Putin starting to weaken as the war does not go according to plan and the sanctions start to bite into his economy? What more can and should the West do to help? Let's find out. Joining me now are Human Rights Foundation chairman, vocal Putin critic, former chess grandmaster, and the author of the book, Winter is Coming, Why Vladimir Putin and the Enemies of Freedom Must Be Stopped, Gary Kasparov, he joins us, and so does the former chief of the defense staff here in Canada, General Tom Lawson. Thank you for being here, and thanks for your service to our country. Gentlemen, um, obviously very tense days. I'm going to start with you, Mr. Kasparov. Um, what is your assessment? You've been a, a longtime uh, uh, opponent of Vladimir Putin. What is your assessment of, of how his invasion of Ukraine is going now and, and now what his, what his goal might be here on the 11th day? Uh, it's definitely not going according to his original plan. I think he expected to uh, destroy Ukrainian army within two or three days to enter Kiev to install puppet government. And then, as he did many times in the past, you know, back to negotiating table with the free world from the position of strength. This plan miserably failed uh, due to heroic resistance of Ukrainians. And also, he discovered that even in the Russian-speaking regions of Ukraine, there is almost zero cooperation from local population. So Russian armies stumbled, but inability to win the, 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 the battle, uh, um, the battlefield, so uh, translated into the um, attacks on civilians. That's what Putin did many times in the past. We can remember Grozny in Chechnya 20 years ago, or Aleppo in Syria. And now we are witnessing um, war crimes on an industrial scale. And I think Putin's goal now is to not just to terrorize Ukrainians and to bombard them into submission, but also sending message to the free world, stay away, I have nukes, and I can do whatever I want. I can kill people. Uh, uh, in the daylight, uh, you can watch it on TV, but you are you are incapable of stopping me. Okay, testing it. Let me go to you, General Tom Lawson. President Zelensky and the Ukrainians are demanding a no-fly zone. NATO says no. They want a no-fly zone for humanitarian corridors. You're a former Air Force person. A lot of a, a lot of folks say without that, Vladimir Putin, no matter how badly it's going now, will continue. What's your assessment about a no-fly zone and the need for that, sir? Well, I think we should make no mistake about our understanding of what a no-fly zone represents. It does represent going to war with Russia. As soon as Western aircraft and air defense systems are shooting down Russian aviators, you're at war with Russia. So it's not a step anything like sanctions. Uh, if we step forward, uh, then we should step forward with that. Uh, and we should uh, step forward making it clear uh, that this is about to happen and give uh, Putin time to make a decision on whether or not that changes the uh, horrific tactics, which are really war crimes uh, now. Okay, so that doesn't happen, Mr. Kasparov. Let, let me go back to you. Um, there's negotiations going on. What is the way out here? Uh, some are saying Putin, there is no way out for him. Some are saying he's facing an internal battle within Russia, even though he's cracking down on the media there to, to, to run his propaganda war. What's your assessment of internally the support in Russia? And what is a possible way out of this, if there is one, uh, from this war? He is no longer cracking on independent media in Russia. It's gone. It's over. Russia today is a full-blown totalitarian state, fascist dictatorship, with one man in charge. So there's no opposition. 
Uh, there's many brave people in the streets protesting, but now to protest against war in Russia could end up three years in jail. And uh, spreading the truth about, about war in Ukraine and Russian losses could, could, could earn you 15 years in jail. So forget about the opposition inside, inside the country. And there is no way out. As long as Putin is in power, there, is, there will be no peace. Uh, it's not a game of chess where you can win, lose, or it could be a tie. There is no tie in this war. Putin made clear his intentions. For many years, by the way, he kept repeating, Ukraine was not a real state, and he was just waiting for the moment to destroy its sovereignty. I think that's only, the only way for us to get out of this crisis and to save our planet is to defeat Putin's troops in, in Ukraine, on the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the field, and also to um, uh, blockade Russia technologically, financially, uh, um, politically, economically, and to make sure that Russian population will revolt and Putin's police, army, and propaganda machines will be broken due to the lack of funds. That is not a short process, General Lawson. From, again, give me your military assessment. Uh, Anti-tank weapons are going in, anti-aircraft uh, weapons are going in. But if you listen to Gary Kasparov and, and others, this is a long fight militarily. What else does the West need to provide to Ukraine? Does it need to provide jets? Well, that, that is, a, of course, under discussion, uh, some discussion of the Americans providing probably F-16s to Poland to allow them to continue with their air defenses with the F-16s they have and the ones they would get from the United States, allow them to give up probably their fulcrums, uh, which is an aircraft uh, that the Ukrainians fly. Uh, and the provision of materiel, as has been going on for recent months uh, and extended by something like that, would be uh, a, a reasonable way ahead that also keeps NATO on this side of going to war with Russia. But I, I think more uh, importantly, um, NATO under President Biden made it clear before the invasion started uh, to Putin uh, that they would not engage militarily on Ukrainian soil. Um, uh, however, there would be sanctions uh, for the president uh, to deal with in Russia. But that was made on the assumption that the Russian military tactics would follow the uh, laws of war. As Mr. Kasparov has uh, just said, uh, that's not the case. Uh, Western targeting uh, always takes into consideration the value of the target, but also the potential for collateral damage, including civilian deaths. That doesn't seem to be part of the calculus in the Russian uh, planning for this campaign and the execution of the campaign. So that assumption was a big one. Which means escalation again. Um, look, gentlemen, I hope we continue to you. I'll invite you back and we continue this conversation. I wish we didn't have to happen. Uh, Gary Kasparov, great to have you on the program. General Lawson, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank, thank you very much for inviting me. All right, coming up, conservative contender, former Quebec Premier Jean Charest mulls a bid for the federal conservative leadership. How would his campaign stack up against Pierre Polyevra? The scrum digs into that next. Stay right here with question period. Well, in the midst of the war in Ukraine, a political battle is taking shape here in Canada, the battle to become the next leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. And there looks like there may be a new entrant in that race, former Quebec Premier Jean Charest. One thing that I believe to be very important is to have a national Conservative Party that is able to represent every part of Canada. The former progressive conservative leader and federal cabinet minister was in Ottawa to meet MPs on his possible bid. 
So far, MP Pierre Polievre, who's offering a center-right populism, is the only declared candidate in the race. But more candidates are expected to announce their bid in the days ahead. As for when a new leader will be announced, well, that date has now been set for September the 10th. So how would Jean Charest stack up against Pierre Polievre? Will there be other entrants into the race? Is this a battle for the soul of the Conservative Party? Let's find out. The scrum is here. Joining us today, Bob Fife, the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail, Stephanie Levitz, a Parliament Hill reporter for the Toronto Star, and our special guest for this round is the former industry minister, James Moore, uh, now at Denton's. Great to have everybody here. Obviously, all attention on the war in Ukraine, but in the midst of that, there's a political battle. James Moore, uh, what do you make of the fact that Pierre Polyev is out campaigning already against Jean Charest, who hasn't even entered the race? How, how do you measure Jean Charest's potential impact here? Well, I, I think it's good for the party to have multiple candidates in the race. And look, Pierre Polyev and Jean Charest, they come from different regions of the country, different, frankly, generations within the party, and different perspectives. Pierre Polyev, from the start of his campaign, has talked about economic issues, middle class issues, home ownership as a dominant concern, uh, fiscal issues, and, and being a real conservative uh, in the face of challenges within the party to sort of unite it back together. Jean Charest comes from a very different school. Uh, and if he presents himself as a alternative prime minister to Justin Trudeau and says, you know, I, I've seen national unity crises before. This country is divided like never before. We see threats beyond our borders like never before and real stresses. And I've governed before federally and provincially in the province of Quebec, and I'm here to offer myself as prime minister. I think it provides, a, I think, a compelling choice for Conservative Party members. I think Pierre is still the front runner in the campaign. He's got, I think, a dominant position at this point. But I think the debate can be very healthy and good for the party, provided it doesn't go off the rails with, with um, divisive rhetoric that sort of is a sort of seen as a fight for the soul of the party, and it's either um, love it or leave it kind of an outcome um, for for either of the two candidates. Yeah, Steph, how, how do you see this? Uh, it's kind of remarkable already. Pierre Polyevre uh, campaigning that Jean Charest is a liberal. Uh, Jean Charest says, "Look, uh, I, I'm an experienced person. What, what do you make of what this says about the race?" So one, the race has the potential to be very nasty because it, in the extent to which it is a fight for the soul of the Conservative Party, that's one piece of it. The second piece of it is this race is about, you know, two things almost at the same time. It is about policy direction for the party, but it's also about healing a lot of wounds and, and pulling together a lot of chasms within the party that have been exacerbated under the tenure of Aaron O'Toole that were somewhat problematic under the tenure of Andrew Scheer. The fundamental question here is, can anybody lead the Conservative Party in a united almost grown-up fashion besides Stephen Harper. And that's the question when I speak to grassroots party members. To them, this isn't who has the better idea on climate change or who can really help me bring down gas prices. It's about who can be the grown-up at the national and international political table on behalf of the Conservative movement and on behalf of Canada. These are exceptionally challenging and difficult times, both for Canadians as a whole and for the Conservative Party. And I think lots of folks are looking as leadership is their ballot box question. Who is the adult in the room? Bob, uh, by the way, we're, we have, Sheree's not even in, but Patrick Brown, a former MP, the mayor of Brampton may jump in, Leslie Lewis, social conservative may jump in. Uh, how do you measure this race so far? Well, the challenge for Mr. Sheree is to, is he can probably win a federal election against the Liberals but can he win the convention for the conservative leadership? He is going to have to sign up an awful lot of new members uh, 
red uh, Tories who had, uh, you know, given up with the party, blue liberals who are completely dissatisfied with uh, the spending, big spending ways of the Trudeau liberals, and, and conservatives who want to win, want to be in government, want to run the country rather than sit in opposition. And he's got a very, very good chance of doing that if he can convince these people to buy memberships and say, I'm doing this for the good of the country. He is, as Stephanie says, the adult around the table. He has an enormous amount of, of experience, both federally as a cabinet minister and as a Quebec premier. Of course, he carries baggage. Uh, Mr. Polyev is a right-wing populist. He has not accomplished much in his life. Uh, he was a, a, a junior cabinet minister and he got in trouble uh, for bringing in legislation was sort of would have rigged elections in favor or votes in favor of the conservatives and he is uh, He plays a kind of politics that we've seen already shown from them. That's kind of nasty and lowbrow against mr. Mr. Charest. We do talk about this James Warren you can comment on this this soul of the party kind of thing Is it a center-right populism people associate with mr. Polyevra? Is it a sort of bigger tent sort of center progressive conservative party? Uh, of Mr. Charest. Is that a fair way to describe what's at stake for the Conservative Party and maybe the Conservative movement? Well, we'll see. Leadership races are often a, a road test of, of how, how you govern the party. A lot of people outside the party will, will see that as a proxy for how you might govern the country. And if all Conservatives can't get along and find something and find a rallying cry together and a cohesive platform and a cohesive approach to governing a continental nation like Canada, then Canadians won't trust you to govern the country. Can't govern yourselves, can't govern the country. I think that's a challenge for both Jean Charest and for Pierre Poiliev and to present themselves as somebody who can unite the party and therefore be worthy of uniting and building the country going out. It's been said that the Conservative Party is not my father's Conservative Party. Jean Charest is about to find out it's really not my grandfather's Conservative Party either. All right, well, we'll find out whose party it is uh, and where that fight goes. I've got to leave it there this morning. Uh, James Moore, thanks for joining us. I know Bob and Steph are going to stay with us for another round. All right, after the break, Canadian weapons. What further action can Canada take to counter Russia? More lethal weapons, more sanctions, and what will the Prime Minister do on his new trip? Conservative foreign affairs critic Michael Chong is our special guest next on The Scrum. Stay right here with Question Period. Welcome back to Question Period. A war of economic suffocation. Canada argues that stiff sanctions will choke off Russia's will to continue the war in Ukraine. We are responding with economic tools that will be far more impactful uh, on, uh, on the world than, uh, than Putin's army can be. That may or may not be true. It depends on Vladimir Putin's willingness to escalate the fight. Sanctions have been supplemented, of course, with weapons pouring into Ukraine. But what else is coming? Right now, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is making his way to Europe for a series of meetings with other world leaders. So is there more that Canada can do to help Ukraine in this inevitable... Okay, three, two... So is there more Canada can and will do to help the Ukrainians fight the Russians? Are more sanctions or more weapons coming? Let's find out. Joining me now, members of the Scrum, Bob Fife, the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Global Mail is here, Stephanie Levitz, Parliamentary Hill reporter for the Toronto Star. And our special guest this round is the Conservative foreign affairs critic, 
Michael Chong. Good morning to all of you here. I'm going to start with you, Mr. Chong, because you've got Prime Minister Trudeau and some cabinet ministers flying to Europe now. What else would you like to see on the table now? Well, we think there's two other things that Canada as a middle power can do to significantly contribute to the defense of not just Ukraine, but Europe. And that is first to get serious about the defense of Arctic security and sovereignty. Like Ukraine, we share a border region with Russia, the Arctic Ocean. And it's time for us to get serious about our security and sovereignty up there. Russia has, it has invested significantly in that region over the last decade. And we need a plan to defend that security and sovereignty as part of the NATO alliance. The second thing we need to do is we need to get serious about seeing energy, particularly natural gas, as important to not only Canadian defense and security, but to Europe's defense and security. In fact, uh, the International Energy Agency this week called for Europe to urgently wean itself off of natural gas in the next while. Uh, Canada can play a big role there if we can get our natural gas to tidewater. So those are the two things we think the government needs to start turning its attention to. Staff Levis, those are long-term issues, of course. Um, there's some immediate needs on this trip for Ukraine, and I know Mr. Chong is talking about those. Th those are years in the making. From, from your point of view, Stephanie Levitz, uh, what is next on the table for the Canadian government? Certainly, there's the question of shipping more military equipment to Ukraine, whether it's lethal aid or even things as simple, Evan, as meals ready to eat, those army packages. The soldiers in Ukraine, the fighting forces need to eat. They need their basic needs met. Canada can definitely help out with that from the, uh, for lack of a better word, arsenal we do have at home. And then the next step for Canada, of course, is to figure out in terms of the global, Europe, the global alliance, the European alliance, how far is too far going to be for the world to let Putin go before more decisive military action is taken, whether it's on the part of NATO or it's on the part of border countries? And what role can Canada play not in just sort of brokering those arrangements, but also providing the gear that may or may not be necessary to make that kind of response happen? Yeah, Bob, uh, you're, you're looking at uh, Canada meeting the Germans, the Poles, the Latvians, and, and of course the UK and other leaders. Uh, what do you expect to be on the table as this war escalates? Well, I probably think they're going to look at any further economic sanctions that can be imposed or encouraging other businesses to be able to take action against the Russians. For sure, uh, they will be looking at what more we can contribute uh, to the Ukrainians in terms of weapons. We've, most of the stuff that we've given them uh, have come from our inventory. Maybe we have to start buying some stuff off the shelf and shipping it to the, to the Ukrainians. And the third thing uh, is disinformation. The uh, leaders in Europe and Canada and the United States are looking at what can we do to stop the Russians from uh, the disinformation campaign from the Russians and to get information in, particularly accurate information on what is really going on uh, in Ukraine to the Russian people. That is a crucial thing that they're going to be discussing. Yeah, massively important. My Michael Chong, this morning we heard on the ground from, from Kyiv that we know that the Ukrainians are begging NATO to reconsider the no-fly uh, zone. NATO's not going to do that, but they want a no-fly zone for humanitarian corridors. What's your view on that? Well, our view is that a, any no-fly zone has to be enforced, uh, and any enforcement action would result in uh, 
conflict between a NATO military and the Russian military. And so that's not on the table. We don't support uh, the imposition of a no-fly zone for that very reason. Look, I think, Evan, we need to do two things at once here. We need to continue as part of the NATO alliance to continue to provide assistance to the Ukrainian army, to the Ukrainian people on the ground, while at the same time avoiding climbing up the escalatory ladder yeah, Stefan Levitz. Uh, by the way, there's the, the weapon side and there's the humanitarian side and taking in refugees. Um, but there, there seems to be a dramatic shift. I mean, what's happened here is, is, and we shouldn't underestimate it, the West has shifted dramatically and NATO's closer together. What's your view of, of the transformation in the last 11 days in terms of how the West has reacted to Russia? This is a geopolitical shift the likes of which we haven't seen. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Evan, there's a quote from, of, of all people, Lenin, going around right now that, you know, goes something like, there are, there are years when, weeks when decades happen, and that's what it feels like in the last 11 days, that the entire geopolitical access has shifted. I mean, we're repeating, you know, elements of 20th century history. Here we are in 2022. It's all happening at the exact same time. I think, you know, going forward, the question is, what does this do to the alliance? I mean, if let's say they let Ukraine in eventually, are they going to let other nations in? What are the red lines the West is setting up? What are we learning about the power of economic sanctions to make a difference or not make a difference? We've heard about sanctions for years on all sorts of conflicts, Evan. It seems to be the sort of the knee-jerk original response on the part of countries. We're going to levy sanctions. We levied sanctions after 2014 and the invasion of Crimea, and that certainly didn't stop Vladimir Putin this time around. Yeah, Bob, last word. What's on your radar screen? Well, uh, Evan, this seems like uh, a bigger, obviously it's a bigger moment than 9-11, but we all remember 9-11, how it changed the world. And this has definitely changed the world in a very significant way. The de liberal democracies have all united, and they've all realized that they were going to have to significantly build up their military forces. Germany, after seven de decades, are spending $100 billion to rearm. You, because of the, if, when the Russians take over Ukraine, as it looks like it will, you're, they, they will control all, they'll be right on the Baltic states along Poland, along Romania, Moldova. All of those countries are going to be threatened in Eastern Europe. And you're going to have to see Canada and all of these countries put soldiers on the ground and bring modern military technology to bear. To, because they've said if, if the Russians cross, that, cross into Eastern Europe, that's the red line, and they will begin fighting. Okay, and uh, you're right, Bob, probably the cost of democracy added to the budget line items of a lot of liberal democracies now. Got to leave it there. Bob Fife, Stephanie Levitz, Michael Chong, I appreciate the three of you joining us today. And that is question period for this week. I'll see you tomorrow at 5 p.m. Eastern on CTV's Power Play. Thanks so much for watching. Our thoughts are with the people of Ukraine. Hug your loved ones. What a privilege that is. And we will be back here in seven short days.